is the third article review, um, which is probably about two-thirds of the class. I think skipped one of the earlier two, so if that's you, make sure you get me that one in uh, by the end of the day today, which means by 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. So make sure I get that in there. That will make, if you skip one of the two, that's going to make a big difference in your grade because right now you got a zero on 50 points. And when I put that one in and drop your lowest, then the zero goes away. So definitely don't, don't miss that. Uh, if you need to do it, if you've already done two and are happy with your grades, you can skip this one, take a zero on it, and then it gets dropped. So you're not required to do it if you're happy with your grades on the first two. Uh, homework four is due coming up in a couple of weeks, and I do have that one for you. So I will give you copies of that, uh, similar to the others. Uh, one, two, if you can pass one down for me. There's one. One, two. And then there will be one more homework. There is a fifth homework, which covers just the last three chapters. I'm sorry? Is one, and one homework gets dropped. That's the whole idea. If you do the first four, you can review that. I do recommend you review it and look at the questions because it'll help you for the final. But if you've done the first four and you've done fine on them, there's, you, you're welcome to skip it. I, know, that's, I do this so that because I know things get busy at the end of the semester and it's a lot easier to take a breath and say, I don't have to do the article review. I don't have to do the last homework. I can just skip it and concentrate on right now what's going to affect your grade is the final and the solar project. That's about 80% of the points remaining in this class are, a lot of them are already in. That's, there's 600 and some points already in. But a lot of what remains is the solar project, which is 160 points total, and the final exam, which is 100. That's most of what is left. So that's kind of why, and the same, same thing with the exam. One exam gets dropped. So if, you're, if, you did, if you could do better than you did on your lowest exam, then great, this will help you a few points. If you do worse, then it gets dropped. So. Again, it's not just completely blow it off. You want to consider it, but you might want to look. Oh, David, sorry. David, give me a few papers back. So, I mean, it, it kind of, I hope that it kind of makes things a little bit easier at the end of the semester. You know, you're not stressing that, oh, I've got, a, I've got an exam and a project and a homework. And it also gives you that advantage for other people because I know other class, you might have a big midterm project that coincides with something I give. So you could skip something earlier in the semester and then use this as, a, as to your advantage. So really what we're looking at that's left, you know, homework four, the, most of the rest of the stuff is all eligible to be dropped. The only thing I still left an asterisk up here, I'm getting those set up and hopefully we'll have them done by the end of the week. Uh, the review quizzes are not up yet, so don't go looking for those. They are not yet available. They will be said hopefully by the end of this week I'll have those up there for you. All right. On the solar project, we are going to spend time the week before going over it. So I will have a lab in class that week before that goes over the solar project. And I'll go over how to do the calculations, how to do the graphs on it. For those who like to get a head start, I know most of you are going to be working on it the week before, right? I know how it works. If you want to get a head start on it, if you go on to the class site and into lesson 13, lesson 13 is the solar project. And if you want to work on it over Thanksgiving or anything else, you have some helpful files. This is some stuff that I will do the following week, but if you want to get a jump on it, you can do that. So things like the video help are just links to videos that show you how to do the calculations and how to do the graphs. 
So if you want to look at them and try to figure them out for yourself, it'll give you a head start on it. If you don't want to, I'm going to, I'm going to do those lectures in class on the 27th. But at that point, you know, you're, you're running up against deadlines. So you, want, you might want to take a look at it earlier. You're not required to. I will go over all of that. In terms of the data that you'll need that I'm providing for you, whoops, I shouldn't have hit that. All right, go back there. There is also a set of data that you'll use, a sample set of data. This is, what I, this is one of the things that I do. Where is it? There it is. You'll see if you go into the sample data, you'll see that there's four sets. You only need to worry about the fall one. Don't worry about it. I just put them all in there because I teach classes all semesters. So they're all there for each class. The only one you need to worry about is the fall. And it's just sample data that you're going to use when you do the graphs and the calculations. This is essentially what I'm going to give you in one of the labs. I'm going to give you this data again and have you go through the calculations and the graphs. And make that. That's going to be one of our labs that week before the project is due. So you're welcome to take a look at it earlier. The whole idea of this is that, yeah, the project is 160 points, but only 30 points of it is the data collection. So I know people have massively busy schedules, classes, and you might not be able to get all 10. Don't, don't stress over the fact that I only got seven observations, or I only got two, or I got none. You might get hit on 30 points, but you can still get 130 points are still available that have nothing to do with collecting the data. So I, do, I try to design it because I know that we have a lot of people with very, uh, you know, very conflicting schedules that might make it real hard to make those observations. I want you to try, and if you can turn in three or four, that's great. And if you can turn in 10, that's perfect. But you don't have to, you're not, you're not going to get a zero on the project if you turn me in nine or anything. Question? Okay, did I answer? <laughs> okay. So I just don't want you to stress over that or anything on the, on the uh, observations. Turn in what you got in. That's perfectly fine. And I know that from this class, I know I have a number of people that haven't given me anything so far. So don't worry about it. You have some numbers here that you can work with. You can, you can answer everything you need to based on the numbers I give you. So you can still get a decent grade on the project even if you were unable to make any observations. And you're welcome to take a look at, uh, take a look at those over the course of the semester. Just remember, and I hate to say it, but it's happened in the past, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, do this. Don't come up all of it. This is why I asked you to turn in all the observations as you're going along. Don't magically come up with new observations all of a sudden that you never gave me during the semester. I've had students do it. If I find that you cheated and made up observations, it's a zero on the project, which kills you. You're better off turning in the two observations you actually made than to fake out, oh, I got 20, and then find, let me figure out that they were fake. And all of a sudden, you got a zero on the whole thing. It's happened in the past. I just, you know, you're better off just saying, hey, I could only get two. You only got two. Take a few point hit on it. So it, it, it has happened. And I just wanted to give you that warning in advance because I am giving you some numbers here that go back over the whole semester. But one of the reasons I have you turn them in as you go is so that I don't have this problem. And all of a sudden, some people come, someone comes back with giving me observations that are you know, all over the semester but never turned in anything during the semester. So just a warning there. You know, I don't want to give someone a zero on the project because that will, cr that will you know, crush your grade. That's a good 15, 15 16% of your grade. But you are welcome to take a look at those and use those. If you want to look at them early, feel free to do so. If you want to just wait until we do the lab, that's fine as well. In terms of the write-up, I, I gave you the information the first week 
So that handout that I gave you that had the data sheet has the, all the information for what I'm looking for, for the write-up. So things like title page, introduction, that's stuff you can start on right now. You, know, you could have that written and something you don't have to worry about on December 4th, December 3rd, December 4th. There are some things you can put together there. Uh, some of the other things you can't really get to uh, do a lot on until you have the data and the graphs, uh, graphs completed, the analysis section in particular. So there are some things you can go ahead and get started just to put them out of the way. So if you're one who wants to get a head start, I just want to let you know that. If not, that week before we will be spending a good amount of time working on the project as well in addition to the chapters we're covering plus the exam. Yes, ma'am. Do we have class on December 6th? December 6th. We have class, I believe we do. Let me see. That is so the. Yeah, there is, there is class on the Wednesday, yes. Yeah, yeah. And then the final exam will be a week after this. That's the only thing I don't have up there. So, yeah, we do. This is just the project due, and then we will finish up. What I'm looking at right now, if all goes as scheduled, the 6th will be the day we actually go through the planets. So I will go through, if I got everything else done by the 4th, which is what I'm hoping, then the 6th will be a day I go through, go through and talk about the planets, because I want to give you a little bit on that, but we want to make sure we get through all the material that's really required for the course first. All right, so questions, other questions? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, do you have any like, examples of what you're looking for for like, the solar project? Like, what are Not really, because if I put that up, it gives out a lot of information. It, it's hard because it's not, it's not like I could do that for an article review because it's not an article. If it's a two-year-old article, then it's not one you're allowed to use anyway. So, but you can see the structure. On this, typically it's about a, I'll scare everybody, about a 10-page write-up. Don't, don't stress out over that. That counts graphs are two pages. There's a couple data tables are two pages. Your title page is a page. All of a sudden, you're down to five pages. So in terms of what the write-up is, I mean, maybe eight to 10 pages. If you're turning me in two or three pages, unless you've really compressed your graphs to so microscopic sizes or something, it's tough. You probably didn't include everything. If you're writing 30 pages, you did way too much. So typically about a 10-page. But again, I'm talking two pages of graphs, two pages. And I'm counting the data tables, mine and yours, on a separate sheet. So that's four pages right there in your title page. So the actual write-up write-up is more like Four, four or five pages typically. So I didn't want. I know. I know. I was stressed. As soon as I say ten pages, it's like what? But when you think of where it goes, it's really not quite so bad. And you had a question as well, or? Yeah, I heard someone say we have a day off coming up. I'm sorry. I heard someone say that we have a day off coming up. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah, we meet next next Thursday. We do not meet. This Thursday we do meet, but next Thursday we do not. So. Other than that, nothing else up till the up till the exam. Good. Other? All right. Well, let's go ahead back to our picture to get started then. Uh, we have, this is the asteroid Bennu. Uh, this is being observed by the spacecraft OSIRIS-REx, which is going out and exploring it. If you remember, we had a couple weeks ago, we had a picture of another asteroid that we were, that the Japanese were exploring. This is another one that is being explored. This is an example of what we call a near-Earth asteroid, which only means that its orbit crosses the Earth's orbit. These are the ones that are potentially dangerous. 
because they crossed the Earth's orbit, they could hit us. And while this thing's only half a kilometer in size, a half kilometer object streaking towards you at tens of thousands of miles per hour and plowing into the Earth is not a pleasant. It's, it's not just going to cause damage in that you know, mile range right around it. It's going to cause damage worldwide. So things like this have happened in the past. This is smaller than the one that it was, would have been caused the dinosaur extinction back 65 million years ago. But even something this side would cause significant damage. So one of the reasons people want to study them is to be able to figure out more about them because they are a potential hazard to the Earth and they're hard to map. This thing's only half a kilometer in size. I mean you can imagine that's, that's tiny when you're getting out there in space. So they're not easy to see in the first place. So even something a little smaller than this can be really hard to find and hard to track. They're also so tiny that their orbits are easily changed. So this one is due in a hundred years to pass between the Earth and the Moon, I think they said. Okay. There's lots of room between the Earth and the Moon, so it's got plenty of room to go right by us and not cause any danger. But the orbits get changed and can get tweaked by other little objects there, other radiation pressures, things that wouldn't begin to affect a large object like the Earth or the Moon. Small objects can be significantly affected, so it's really hard to accurately determine what their orbit will be 50, 100, or 1,000 years from now. So many of these objects are ones that you know, will, are, are potential dangers. So the little video clip just kind of shows it rotating. It takes, and I should have remembered the number, what is it, four hours to rotate. It's not going to four hour video, it's compressed down into about seven seconds. So it just actually shows it as the craft is there. And it's a very irregularly shaped object. Got some nice bulges to it there, and that's, that's about it. It's just seven seconds worth. I'm going to go back to it so we have. But it is the kind of object that we want to study. Now, what Osiris Rex is going to do is actually going to land, take samples, and bring them back. So in, it's going to land in 2020. First, it's going to map it, then it's going to land in 2020, collect some soil samples, and bring them back in 2023. So it'll be a chance, again, to study some. It's one of the things we don't do in astronomy, right? To actually have physical pieces to study for the most part. We have some moon rocks, we have little bits of meteorites and things, but for the most part, all the stuff we talk about in this class with stars and galaxies, it's not something we can bring into the laboratory to study. So we'll have at least some pieces of this to be able to get a better idea of what things are like out there in the solar system. All right, questions? <coughs> Otherwise, and I'm going to double check. It tells me I was here. Is this correct? Because I don't remember exactly where I was. Was I working on why relativity? Did I talk about why relativity is important in the GPS? If some, because this is where it tells me I left off, but this was a week ago and I completely do not remember. <laughs> I'm sorry, space time? Was I back a little further? Was I way back here? Yeah. Okay. So I had started to talk about this one. I'd finished, I'd talked about what, I talked about the equivalence principle a little bit. How light, how light apparently bends in a gravitational field. Okay. So let's go ahead on to space time then. I knew I hadn't gotten very far through it, but I probably looked ahead at a slide. And let's see. 
And that's my problem is that I have a second class that I do in the evenings and they're about the same, we're both at about the same point and that's tough to remember where I left off with another. So what I want to remember, what I want you to look at is you know, the equivalence principle tells us that gravity, in a gra when light travels through an area of strong gravity, it can be bent. So that's the difference in how gravity and how gravity works under general relativity versus how it works under Newton's gravity. Newton, it was a force between two masses. So light particles would be unaffected by the mass. They have zero mass, so the force would be zero and they would just travel straight lines. However, when space and time are bent by a massive object, light has to travel through that deformed space just like mass does. So that, therefore, the light will also follow a curved path when it goes through the distortion. The greater the distortion, the greater the deviation. So if it's light is passing near something very low mass, right, here in the classroom, it doesn't deviate very much. There's no real high mass of objects here in the classroom. In terms of passing by the moon, it's not going to be moved very much. By the earth, not very much. By the sun, a little bit. And by very, very massive objects, which we'll come to in terms of black holes, significantly more. So it cannot follow a straight line path because space is what is curved. It wants to go in a straight line, but it cannot because space is all deformed around that massive object. And that's kind of what Einstein gave us is that space and time are really intertwined. You can't separate space from time. And the idea of what we mean by space-time is kind of given on a much, a very simplified graph here in terms of moving through space and moving through time. We think if we're just standing still, right, we're no longer moving. I'm not moving through space. I'm not moving forward or backward. I'm not moving left and right. I'm not moving up and down. I'm just sitting here. Ignore the Earth's motions and all of that stuff. But just relative to anything else here, I'm standing still. But I'm still moving. I'm moving forward in time at one second per second, right? just as we all are. And that's what the graph is trying to show you. It shows a distance traveled in one direction because if you try to do this in three and then four, three dimensions, it gets really complicated. That if you're just driving east, for example, you drive east, you are changing your distance and at the same time your time is changing. So between points A and B, you were driving east at some speed. Between points B and C, you stopped. Maybe you stopped to get gas, maybe you stopped to get something to eat. Your distance didn't change. You're still staying at 150 kilometers away from your location. But your time continued to change. Time didn't stop when you stopped. Time continues to go. So in terms of what we call a space-time diagram, that's when you're moving, a diagonal line is moving, a, a line going straight up and down would mean that you're not moving through space, but you're still moving through time. And then at point C to D, you started, you started moving again. So the whole idea is that the two are actually intertwined together. That there's not just space and just time, but when we think about how gravity works, how things move, you can't look at space and time independently. You have to look at them together. And that's kind of what, a, what part, of the, uh, part of the big point is here. 
So when we look at this, what kind of distortion do we get? Well, here's an example of what you might see. And again, we have three dimensions of space and one of time. I can't picture it. I, I, maybe you guys can. I can't. I cannot picture. I can picture three dimensions of space, but if you try to do a fourth dimension, you know, my mind starts to explode. I can't. Ma I can't imagine that fourth dimension. I mean, a fourth spatial dimension, which may exist as well, would be perpendicular to all the directions we know simultaneously. It's not something you can imagine. So we always go down in the dimensions to use uh, comparisons for it. So here we're looking at just a two-dimensional space. What would happen in a two-dimensional space, in this case shown by the grid, if you put a massive object in it? And this is what I showed in that video clip, that if you put something heavy in it, it deforms. It'll deform the space around it. The more massive the object, the more it gets deformed. So a small object like the Earth only deforms space around it a little bit. A smaller object like the Moon, it would be even less. A bigger object like the sun would push things down more, would distort our two-dimensional space, would distort it further into a third dimension. A really massive thing like a black hole would form you know, a really deep hole here, would go really down really quite far. So the more massive the object, the more it's going to be deformed. And then what's going to happen, objects still want to follow their shortest path. They want to follow a straight line path. If they're out here, they can. Unless you're really close to the mass, it doesn't matter. So an object out here can travel a nice straight line. When you come in close, now you're traveling through a curved space and what you'd call a straight line, the shortest path that it wants to follow is now a curved path, not a straight path. So it follows that curved path because it's the shortest path for it to follow. Same thing on the surface of the Earth, if you've ever flown internationally, if you want to fly from here to Japan, you don't fly over California, you fly up over Alaska. Not just because they want to take you to Alaska, but because it's the shortest path. So it's the cheapest way to do it, uses the less fuel. If you actually put it on a globe and put a piece of string there, you know, the actual shortest path trying to travel between very large distances can take you very far north or very far south. And not necessarily what you'd think would be the straightest. You know, obviously the quickest way to get there would be tunnel through the earth, right? That would be the straight line going through. That would be the shortest. That's not possible. But if you're going to follow the earth's surface, going along this way is actually longer than going up and over things like a place like Alaska. So it's not something that applies just out in space and time. It does apply here on earth as well. So got all this nice stuff with general relativity. Is it correct? You know, how can we test things like this? And there actually are a couple of tests that have been done for general relativity. One of the problems before, before even before the time of general, even before Einstein came out with general relativity, was that Mercury's orbit could not be predicted by Newton. In fact, what it's showing here is here's Mercury's orbit. It actually ha undergoes what we call a precession. It slowly changes its orbit. So its closest point is here in one orbit, then here, then here, then here, and it slowly changes. Newton predicts this. So does Einstein, but they predict different amounts. And in fact, what was found before Einstein is that the amount that it was shifting was off by 43 arc seconds every century. 
for how small an arc second was, right? 1,800 of them across the full moon. We're only looking at 43 over 100 years. It's tiny, but it was well within the measurements of the time. 100 years ago, we could easily make a measurement that accurately and find out that Mercury was not following the path given by Newton. There was something wrong with it. All the other planets worked fine. But this one did not. So there was a problem. And what, what, there were a couple of options, right? If you have some observation that doesn't fit with your theory, either you're missing something or the theory's wrong. So maybe Newton was wrong, or maybe the other thought was that you know, maybe there's another planet orbiting in there that would cause this to deviate. Astronomers went, did calculations looking for this mysterious planet, were never able to find one. And then by the early 1900s, Einstein came out with general relativity, which predicted Mercury's orbit perfectly. Why Mercury and not the others? Mercury's the closest one to the sun. It's the one that is in this very close region where the space is most distorted. So that's why Mercury was the only one. The other ones do this as well, but the effects are so tiny as you get out to Earth and Mars and Jupiter that they're not measurable. So Mercury was the only one that we could actually see this. So this was, a, was something that it solved that had existed before. But one of, the good th one of the big things about a theory is can, can you make a prediction that then comes true? And one of the things that Einstein did was to suggest that the, the starlight would deflect if it came close to a massive object. So what you would see is if this object were coming, here's the Earth, there's a distant star off here. As the light comes by the sun, it gets bent a little bit and strikes the Earth. Now, of course, we trace it back. We look straight back, and we now see that star coming from this direction. There's a difference in the positioning. The star is really here, but we observe it coming from the light coming from this location. The amount of that shift depends on how close the star is to the limb of the sun. So how close it is there, and it depends on the calculations of general relativity. So it is a prediction that was made that this would happen. Remember, general relativity is only a little over 100 years old. The difficulty to observe it is that if you're trying to look at a star that close to the sun, how do you see it? Well, the only time you can do it is during an eclipse. So in 1919, this is kind of the subject of the movie that I showed that clip from, was that Arthur Eddington did take a, make an eclipse expedition to go observe an eclipse and to take pictures of the eclipse sun, in which case you could see the stars around it, and compare it to one that had been made six months earlier when the sun wasn't in that part of the sky. If Einstein was right, the shifts would be, there, you would see a shift in the stars. And the shifts that were found matched almost perfectly with what was predicted by Einstein, what was predicted by general relativity. So this was good, the orbit of Mercury, but we knew that was an error in advance, so you, know, you can make up a theory that matches. I don't know. We can say this theory, okay, we need to, we need to get it to fit to match this, this equation. It's not bad, but even better was being able to predict that starlight would be deflected by the sun, had never been seen before, and predict how much, and then be able to go out and observe it. So it's a great confirmation of general relativity. All right. So 
general relativity has been tested. I didn't add in the more recent one. Actually, the last part of this lecture, I'll talk about the uh, gravitational waves, which are another prediction that Einstein gave that have only been detected in the last couple of years. So let's look at general relativity and time. Time, what, what Einstein says is that as you get closer to a massive object, time will slow down. So if you're standing on the ground floor of a skyscraper, your clocks are running slower than if you're at the top floor of that skyscraper. It's an incredibly small amount. You're not going to notice it, but it can be measured. If you get atomic clocks down, down on the ground and atomic clocks up high or even better up in, up in a satellite, you can measure a difference between them because of, their, because of how close they are to the ground. So a clock on the ground, and a clock means you know, your watch. It also means anything. Your biological clock will also slow down. Your aging would slow down in a strong gravitational field. So if you want to live longer, stay closer to the ground. Okay, you're talking about microseconds over a, you know, over a lifetime, so it's not really going to make any difference. But if you're in a strong gravitational field, your clocks will slow down. Well, your, clock, clock, your clock and your watches will all slow down. So all time will actually slow down in a strong gravitational field. Now, it's minuscule for the Earth. It's important, and we'll see in just a minute. But it's minuscule. It's not going to affect how long people live because you're talking about you know, microseconds, you know, millionths of a second. So it's not going to make a very big difference. The other thing that happens is that when something tries to escape from a gravitational field, if we try to launch a rocket and we accelerate a rocket up, gravity pulls it down and slows it down. That's how it loses energy and it has to keep expending energy to get it away. So if an, if an object is trying, or if I toss something up in the air, right, it slows down. I try, I try to get it to escape the Earth's gravitational field. It goes up, it slows down, stops, comes back down to me. Gravity slowed it down. When the light tries to escape from a gravitational field, it can't slow down. Light can only travel at the speed of light. So it only travels at one speed, 300,000 kilometers per second. It still has to lose energy trying to escape from that gravitational field. So instead of changing its speed, which it can't do, it can change its frequency or its wavelength. So its wavelength ends up getting stretched. So in a strong gravitational field, you know, blue light being emitted here is getting stretched and stretched as it tries to escape and ends up, may end up being detected as red light. Now, for the Earth, that's not going to make any difference. We're not seeing light from the sun that is shifted by this kind of, the amount, kind of amount, light from the moon. That's not going to be a significant amount. But when we start looking at things like black holes, it can. You can actually shift things by whole colors and whole big parts of the spectrum if you're trying to escape from something very close to a really strong gravitational force, not the little tiny ones we've looked at so far. So that's what we mean by a gravitational redshift. It has nothing to do with motions. The redshift we've talked about before has to do with things moving, the Doppler effect. This has nothing to do with motions, but is also, again, a form of way of losing energy when escaping from a gravitational field. So. Why do we care? Why does relativity matter? It actually does matter in everyday life, which is maybe a surprising thing. Here we go. You know, it usually only, it only applies under extreme conditions, but you use it 
Well, every day if you use a GPS, use a GPS to get you someplace, that depends on GPS satellites that are in orbit around the Earth. Okay? Stronger gravity here, weaker gravity way up in orbit. Therefore, time runs slower down close to the ground and runs faster up on these. If that's not taken into effect, into account when you're doing calculations, then um, I didn't give you the individual numbers, uh, but that's going to throw them off. So those are going to throw off. They're traveling at uh, where gravity is weaker, so the clocks speed up because of general relativity. I don't go over a lot of special relativity in this class, but they're also traveling at high speeds, which causes their clocks to slow down. However, they don't balance out perfectly. And there's an actual difference of 38 microseconds per day. Microseconds, so millionths of a second, not very much. But it is enough to mean that a, you could be, your GPS could be off by seven miles every day. So you have it all aligned today, but you try to go someplace tomorrow, it's going to take you seven miles off from where you were supposed to go. Just because, because of relativity. If relativity is not taken into account. So while you don't have to do the calculations for it, you don't have to calculate the general relativistic shift, if it's not taken into account, your GPS isn't going to work. If we just went with basic Newtonian, Newtonian physics, Newtonian calculations using Newton's laws, this wouldn't work and your GPS wouldn't get you where you want to go. So, just a little everyday example there, you know, most of it, most of relativity, it's way out there, you know, it applies only to astronomy or it applies even on astronomy under these very extreme conditions. Here's a case where it does not, where it actually applies to things that we look at, uh, use on a, on a regular basis. So, finishing up this section, uh, general relativity, uh, describe gravity differently than what Newton had done. It's a bending of space and time. So it bends the space and time around it, and then material, light, planets, asteroids all move in that deformed gravity. We've done a number of tests to confirm it. I talked about two here in terms of the orbit of Mercury and bending of light by the Sun. But we also have, you know, the shifting of clocks. Those are also general relativistic predictions that have been made and that we find to be correct. And as I said, even GPS satellites that we use regularly are constantly having to make corrections using general and special relativity in able to determine positioning. So that's a little bit on general relativity. Next I want to look at where it applies if there are Questions? All right. Then we will look at where it, where it really matters. And it, it matters significantly, you know, more than just 38 microseconds, but black holes. So starting off, you know, what do we mean by a black hole? And the basic definition would be an object with such strong gravity that nothing including light, would be able to escape from it. So everything has an escape velocity. I throw something up, it goes up in the air and it comes back down. I throw it harder, it goes up even higher. If I could throw it even harder, you know, if I could really get it launched up high enough, fast enough, it would escape from the Earth. Right? No way I'm possibly going to be able to throw it that way, but you could launch something. We launch rockets all the time that can escape, from, escape away from the Earth. So even back in the 1700s, there were 
people who thought of this. Laplace and Mitchell actually thought of this idea that, you know, what if something were compacted so small and had such a large mass that its escape velocity was greater than light? So it wasn't the modern concept of a black hole, but the idea that objects could exist that could not be escaped from. If, that th- if they could not travel faster than light, how were we going to get away from them? So if you have a small enough object, as you have the astronaut there and you shrink this down, shrink this down, eventually you get it to the point where the escape velocity, you've crushed so much mass into such a small size that the escape velocity is greater than light. So in order to escape from it, you've got to travel faster than light, which as far as we know is impossible. So that's the whole idea. The gravitational force will increase. If we could compress the Earth down to half its size, be smaller. Mass is still the same, but now it's in a smaller area, it's denser, and the gravity would be higher. So we'd incre- our, our mass would stay the same, but our weight would increase if we just crushed the Earth down a little bit. wouldn't become a black hole if we crushed it down to half its size. We'd need to do that a lot, we'd do a lot more. But how do these work with general relativity? Remember that gravity is just a curving of space and time. So as you shrink the object, you're not changing its mass but you're changing its density, you're compressing it down to a smaller and smaller area. So if you're on a very large object holding up a flashlight, light can go out in all directions just fine. The gravity just isn't bending space around it very much. As you compress this down further and further, light rays are now forced to go through this very distorted space. So the paths that they follow don't allow them to escape. In this case, only the one going straight away is going to be able to escape. Everything else are not pulled back by the gravity. So it's not that they are being pulled back, that gravity is pulling them down, but space is so distorted here that the straight line path they try to follow, the shortest path, ends up bringing them right back to this compact object. If you make this a little bit smaller, You're real close here to what we call a black hole, a little bit smaller, even this last ray would not be able to escape away. Everything would be pulled in by the black hole. So as you get that curvature, as you get that distortion that we looked at, remember the two-dimensional sheet, if you push something heavy down there, put something heavier and heavier and heavier. You distort things more and more and now nothing can escape from it. They're following the, as I said, they're following the only pass they can, they can in that, in that very, very distorted space, which is vastly more than anything we have around here, anything with the sun. This is vastly more. This is compressing the mass of the sun down into something that would be just a few kilometers in size. That's how small you'd have to actually compress it. So, parts of a black hole. Black holes are actually relatively simple objects. They don't have a lot of properties. Unlike stars, we have things like temperatures, and we have spectra, and we have compositions. What are they made up of? Black holes are relatively simple objects. All the material is compressed down to what we call a singularity. And this is theoretical under Einstein's equations. What really happens inside there, we don't know. But theoretically, everything is compressed down to a singularity, a point. So you take all the mass of a star, 
Compress it down, 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 and you know, squeeze your fingers together as tight as you can, and it still fits in between there. That's what we mean by a point. I mean, literally, we mean a point, not a dot that you draw in a math a point, but the theoretical concept of a point, which is zero size, absolutely zero size. So it's an infinite density. That's where the whole black hole is. That's where everything really goes crazy. However, there's also a size associated with black holes, and we call this outer size the event horizon. There's nothing there. The event horizon is simply the point at which the escape velocity, as you get closer and closer to the high mass, that's the point at which the escape velocity is greater than light or equals light. Once you try to go inside this, now you cannot escape. So it's called the event horizon. You can't know anything about events going on inside that region. No information from in here goes, goes out. You could have a really massive black hole. You could have a supernova explosion go out in here. It never gets to the outside world. All that information is trapped. We know nothing about it. The Schwarzschild radius is just a way to calculate that. Don't need to worry about the calculation there, but the radius just depends on the mass. So 2, g, and c are just constants. So the bigger the radius, which is the radius of the event horizon, the bigger the mass. The bigger the mass, the bigger the radius. They're still going to be incredibly tiny. So even for small, even for you know, big objects, you're going to compress things down very, very small. Did I do that? Okay, so how big are these? Well, it depends on how much of the mass. You can make the Earth a black hole if you wanted to. If you have some way to compress everything on Earth, buildings, oceans, people, everything, compress it down to one centimeter, a little less than a centimeter, so about like that. If you can take the whole Earth, and not just a single person, but everything on the Earth, down to about a centimeter, the Earth would be a black hole. That would be how big its event horizon would be. You'd have to compress it down that small to make the escape velocity greater than light. For the sun, it would be about three kilometers, about two miles in size. The sun's got a lot more mass than the Earth, so its event horizon would be a lot bigger. If you took the entire galaxy and made it into a black hole, it'd be about a tenth of a light year. Seems like a big distance, but it's four light years. Four and a half light years to the nearest star, 4.3. So a tenth of that, that's a lot of those that could fit between us and the nearest star, let alone all of the other objects in our galaxy. So you're still compressing it down to incredibly small values. And then one of the um, misconceptions about black holes is that they're these great big vacuum cleaners that just suck up everything. They really don't. Any unusual effects that we see on a black hole, there's stronger gravity only matter if you're close to the event horizon. If you're not, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, you saw at Mercury's, remember I took Mercury's orbit, the little bit of deviation there was all due to the mass of the sun, but you were already well away from the sun even at Mercury's distance. So any unusual effects only really get noticed when you get close. So if we right now somehow compress the sun into a black hole, Take the sun, crush it down to less than three kilometers, it's now a black hole. Earth doesn't get affected. Well, not directly. Our orbit doesn't get affected. We'll continue to orbit around that black hole just like we orbit around right now. And in fact, for all calculations that you do, for any calculation that you can do, 
it doesn't really matter whether the mass is spread out or compressed down into a point. You can do calculations with the Earth orbiting the Sun. The general assumption is, okay, you've got a point Earth and a point Sun. And you calculate the gravity between them. You don't calculate the forces between all of them. So if we converted the Sun right now into a black hole, it doesn't affect our orbit. I'll qualify that. Does it affect us? Yeah, it's going to get dark. Where's all the light coming from, in the, from here, right? Look outside, that's all sunlight. It's going to get cold. That's all our source of heat. So yes, if to converting the sun into a black hole would destroy the Earth, but it wouldn't destroy it because it's a black hole. It would destroy it because we lost our light and our heat, and everything would freeze. Otherwise, the Earth, this now nice, now nice frozen solid Earth with no atmosphere or anything else, would continue to orbit around just as it does today. And if you came back in a million years, it would still be orbiting exactly the same. Or in a billion years, it would still be exactly the same. So they don't just suck up everything. It's only if you get really close to them that many of the effects are important. Now I said that black holes were relatively simple objects. And some of the properties of a black hole, I talked about stars, right? Stars had temperatures, they had luminosities, they had compositions. And you know various other things that we could look at them. Black holes have only three properties. Nothing else matters. Black holes do not have a temperature. There is no temperature to a black hole. There is no composition to a black hole. What is it made up of? All that information got crushed out of existence when you made a black hole. Everything is crushed down so small <coughs> that there are no atoms. There are, there's nothing else there. It is simply a point of mass. So the only things we can know about a black hole are its mass, how much matter is there, but not what it's made up of. You can make a black hole out of iron. You can make a black hole out of hydrogen. When you compress it down to a black hole, all that information's gone. So you don't know whether it was made out of iron, hydrogen, peanut butter, whatever else you got a big enough mass of crushed down small enough, it's a black hole, but you lost all that information. You don't know what it was made up of anymore. And it makes no difference. An iron black hole that was made from two solar masses worth of iron is exactly the same as one that was made from two solar masses of hydrogen. There's no difference in their properties. It's just the mass that matters. That's the biggest one. Uh, the other two are electrical charge. We don't lose that information. When you crush everything, it remains whether it had a positive or negative charge. So if you feed a lot of electrons into a black hole, it will become electrically charged. That's not generally considered very important because if you put a lot of negative charge in, it's going to attract positive charges. And over the long run, it's going to pretty much even itself out because the electromagnetic force between those positive and negative charges is much, much stronger than the gravitational force. So if you had a black hole that had a big electrical charge, it was going to be, it's going to be attracting all the opposite charges and will neutralize itself. So it'll end up being pretty close to being electrically neutral. But it is one of those properties that it can have. And the third one is angular momentum, spin. So a black hole can, can have spin associated with it. It could be spinning clockwise, could be spinning counterclockwise, could be spinning faster or slower. But that's it, no magnetic fields. No compositions, no temperatures, nothing else. None of the other properties that we talked about with stars apply. That's all we can know about a black hole are those three things. So while they're mind-blowing objects, they're not very complicated. There's not a lot of things that you can possibly know about them. 
And depending on what the mass and the charge or the spin on, there are different properties that can go on inside that black hole as far as we, at least as far as we understand right now. Now, theoretically, this is what Einstein's equations tell us, everything gets crushed down to what we call the singularity, a point. We don't know whether that really happens because we have no way to see it. We can't see inside the black hole to tell whether it's what is really going on there. Did something stop the compression you know, from three kilometers for the sun? Did something stop it at one kilometer or at ten meters? You know, we have no way to know. We don't have anything theoretically that will tell us that it will stop. As far as we know, there is no force that will hold it up after it reaches a certain point. But it is questionable as to whether that type of thing really exists. If you create a singularity, then all of physics goes crazy. Space doesn't exist, time doesn't exist. So, you know, you, it's very hard to imagine what things might be like there. And it's one place where our physics just breaks down. General relativity doesn't explain what can go on in such a small space with gravity. What we're really looking at is you know, grand unified theories, things that combine general relativity, which was one of the big physics theories coming out of the last century, with the other one, which was quantum mechanics. They don't mesh together. They completely, you know, they're completely different. But there has to be a way, because they're both descriptions of nature, they have to, there has to be some overlying theory that combines them both. It's what we haven't found yet. So things like grand unified theories and string theories that you hear about are ways that people are trying to put them together. We haven't gotten something that's completely successful yet in trying to explain those. But probably 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, you know, who knows, someone will come up with that theory that really explains both of them together. So in the meantime, what would it be like to visit a black hole? So, you can imagine taking a trip towards a black hole, what would we see? As, as the astronaut approaches, it's going to depend on what we see and what they see. Things become, the perspective becomes different. Remember how I told you that clocks slow down? It's not something noticeable to you. So if you're close to a black hole, your clock slows down, but you don't notice it. So, we will see, as this person approaches the black hole, the clocks will move more slowly. So our clocks are running faster and faster, far away from the black hole. The astronaut's clocks are running slower and slower and slower and slower. But the astronaut won't notice that. To them, they're going to see it. It's a matter of relative observations. They're going to see, even though their clocks are slowing down, they're going to see everything else is speeding up. And that we're going through time a lot faster. It's all a matter of the perspective. It's the same result. But it's a matter of perspective as to what you see. So the astronaut would get closer and closer. We would start to see a redshift as they got closer from the gravitational effects. So if they're sending us out radio signals at some wavelength, they're going to get stretched towards longer and longer and longer wavelengths as they try to escape from that intense gravitational field. At the event horizon, we would see the astronaut stop. Time is now essentially for them stopped from our perspective. Their clocks have slowed down to zero and the astronaut would appear to stop. The astronaut wouldn't see this. The astronaut would see their clocks running normal and at the point of the event horizon ours would be going infinitely fast as the astronaut plunges through 
and crosses the event horizon. So in terms of perspective, what would happen, we would see the clock slowing, we would see the clock slowing down, astronaut would see our clock speeding up. The gravitational redshift, we would see them shifted, his signals would be shifted towards longer and longer wavelengths. Depending on the size of the black hole, some other things can happen. There's a term given as a spaghettification. Essentially what ha- would happen by the gravitational force is as shown here, the astronaut would get stretched. If you're looking at a small black hole, things that are sizes of the sun and stars. You know, solar mass is a few times the mass of the sun. And spaghettification, not, not literally meaning you're turning into spaghetti, but you're getting stretched out longer and longer and longer. Because the gravitational force at your feet is stronger than the gravitational force at your head. Those tidal forces, tidal forces between what's going on at the feet and what's going on at the head will stretch you. This happens within our solar system to a smaller extent. Right? Tides, they're called tidal forces. It does the, the moon does this to the earth. Right? Not near strong enough to be able to stretch it all the way out. But it does pull the water on the earth and pull t- cause tides. Here the person is actually getting stretched out. Interestingly, it depends on the size of the black hole, but maybe not the way you'd think. The smaller the black hole, the worse the effect. So if we turned the sun into a black hole and then tried to visit it, you know, our spaceship and us would be all stretched out into long strands, spaghetti-like strands. If we went to a supermassive black hole, which we'll talk about in the coming chapters, you can actually pass right through the event horizon without it affecting you. It's so large that even when you're out at that great, you're out at that great distance, the tidal forces, the difference in the gravitational force for your feet versus your head, are small, are so, are small enough that you won't notice it. So you could actually go through the event horizon of a really massive black hole. Things, these are things that are millions or billions of times the mass of the sun. They exist too, and we'll talk about those coming up. But they're actually, you could actually travel through one without even knowing it. In fact, it's possible that you could pass the point of no return across the event horizon without even knowing it. There'd obviously be other effects that you could, de- could detect at the time, but the spaghettification will really only occur outside the event horizon for these very small black holes. Doesn't mean it wouldn't occur for the others. It just wouldn't occur until after you cross the event horizon. Once you got further in, you would eventually get close enough to that singularity that guess what? You'd still get stretched apart and ripped apart. But you might not notice it early on. You would, might not notice it crossing into the, bla- into the black hole itself. So, do these things actually exist? And you know, how can we detect something that we can't see? We can't see a black hole. I mean, that's the whole idea of it. Light can't escape. It gives off no light. And that means any kind of light. Can't give off x-rays, can't give off gamma rays, can't give off radio waves. They all travel at the speed of light. None of them can escape. Particles travel slower than the speed of light, so they can't get out. So how can you detect a black hole? Well, there are some things that you can use. And you can use examples of the gravitational effects on orbits. So when you see, and this is the example that I have sketched out here, is the, what we call Cygnus X1. It was the first X-ray source detected in the constellation of Cygnus, how it got its name. And you can see that there is a big bright blue star there that's orbiting with something else. But the something else is you can't see. 
Material is being transferred from one to the other and as it spirals in it heats up and gives off x-rays. But when we look at the mass, we find we can figure out the mass of this star. We know what type of star it is. We know basically how massive they are. You know, pretty accurately. We can use Kepler's laws for the orbit. And if you remember, Kepler's law doesn't give you the orbit, the, the mass of any given object. It gives you the total mass. This object plus this object. So if, for example, this were a 20 solar mass star, just to throw out a number. And you use Kepler's laws and you find out that there's 35 solar masses in that system. That leaves 15 that's invisible. If it was a 15 solar mass star, we'd see it. Can't hide a 15 solar mass star. That's a nice big bright star. A white dwarf can only be about 1.4 solar masses. A neutron star can only be about three. Nothing that we know of could be in that small of a space, be invisible to us, and have that much mass. The only other thing you might want to try to, maybe there's a whole bunch of neutron stars there. Well, you could do that. What if you had three or four or five neutron stars all orbiting around together? But you'd notice it. Right? The, as those neutron stars orbit around, the star wouldn't move in a nice simple orbit. It would go zigzagging all over the place as neutron stars are on the same side pulling it or on opposite sides. Just like when we look at multiple planet systems. So if you had all those neutron stars there, in such a small space, it wouldn't work out either. The only thing we can come up with to explain this is a black hole, and a black hole about 15 times as massive as the sun. This was the first one that was detected back in the 1970s. Now we can also look at things like not just the motions, but we can look for things like x-ray emissions. The black hole can't give off x-rays, right? However, that only applies when you get inside the event horizon. As things spiral down in, the event horizon would be the little black dot there at the center. Material spiraling into the black hole forms a disk around it. As it spirals in, those particles brush up against each other and create a lot of friction and heat. So you will heat things up from hundreds of degrees, thousands of degrees, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, down to millions of degrees, giving off x-rays. Why are they heated up so much? You've got that incredible gravity pulling them in and spiraling them in. So as they spiral into the black hole, they give off lots of x-rays. So the x-ray emission is another good sign of this. Other objects could give off. You know, maybe we can get some x-rays from neutron stars as well if we bring particles in close to them. But not near as much in terms of the calculations. What can we actually get from a neutron star? So what other type of object can we use? That's really the only thing that we can have right now that will explain it. Unless you can come up with some you know, theory that explains other things, everything else that we see about it, and can still explain why that much mass is invisible. There are also, that we'll be talking about over the next couple chapters, things called supermassive black holes. Not things that are just 10 and 20 and 30 times the mass of the sun. Those would be ordinary black holes. Uh, these are seen at the centers of most galaxies, including our own, which we'll start talking about in just a couple minutes here. There's a black hole at the center of our galaxy that's four million times the mass of the sun. Doesn't affect us, right? We're still, we're, our sun's still orbiting around it. Doesn't make any difference in terms of the gravitational effects. <coughs> but there is a gigantic black hole there that we can also see through gravitational effects of objects really close to it. How fast stars move at the center of our galaxy. In fact, you can see, and I think I'll maybe get to show you a video clip 
uh, probably next time, that shows some of these orbits that have been measured. And you can see stars going, coming close to some object, and all of a sudden the star that was going this way two days before is going the other direction. How do you take a star? What, what can take a star and change its direction within a couple of days? Right, the galaxy could do it. We're making an orbit around and you know, we're slowly changing our direction, but it takes hundreds of millions of years. Here, just within days or less, you're changing the orbit. So we can see those gravitational effects and we can see that X-ray emission. So we'll be talking about black holes again over the next few chapters. We'll come back to them and primarily we'll be talking about the most massive ones, what we call these supermassive black holes. So. Finishing up this section, again, what is the definition of a black hole? An object with an escape velocity is greater than the speed of light. They have very few properties. So those three properties, mass, spin, and charge. That's it. Mass is the primary one. And even though it has that large mass, remember, it's not a vacuum cleaner. So if we just turn the sun into a Black hole of the same mass, don't change its mass. Now if we, put a, if we put a 400 solar mass black hole there, that would change things. Put a 20 solar mass black hole, that would change the orbits a little bit because you'd be changing the mass. But if you just compress the sun to a black hole, other than it getting dark and cold, which wouldn't be pleasant either, we'd be just fine. Um, but, and we do have evidence for both stellar sized black holes and supermassive black holes. And I said in the next, uh, not the next section, but the next chapter, we'll start looking a little bit more at those supermassive black holes. So now we all understand perfectly black holes, right? I can't say I do, but try to give you some at least the basics of them there. All right, questions? Yes? Well, if it's, if it's truly a singularity, there'd be nothing. There are thoughts that maybe there's some kind of other shape or things in there that allows you know, a black hole to actually allow you to travel through different parts of the universe. So you could travel into a black hole here. Space and time is so warped, and if space and time is warped around, you can enter at one point in space, and you can come out at another point in space. So I mean, there's thoughts like that, but we don't have, you don't have the experiment and you don't have the theory really to be able to explain it yet. But there are thoughts that maybe, you know, there are ways out of a black hole if you actually get into one. When, if, if there's not a, sing, if the singularity is wrong, which it most likely is, but it's just what we have right now. But there are other shapes. Sometimes the singularity, instead of being a point, is like a torus, donut shape. And in that case, there's possibilities that you could travel through without actually hitting the singularity. If you hit the singularity, Guess what? You become part of it. So it's a point of mass and boom, everything's crushed down. You're crushed down and all your information is uh, gone as well. So there is that possibility, but it's still wide open. Good. Others? Okay. Well, last section of this chapter that I wanted to look at, short one, looks at gravitational waves. This is one we wouldn't have had even just a couple years ago. Um, wouldn't have really been able to talk about much more than this, much more than what I have, what, much more than really what I have up here. It is a prediction of general relativity. An accelerating mass, a mass that is moving, will produce gravitational waves. Accelerating charged particles produce electromagnetic waves, light. So when we accelerate and move particles with the electrical charges, atoms and things, they give off light. The electrons jump between energy levels and can give us light. 
mass works just the same. So moving massive objects, me, this moon, the sun, are all moving around. We're all giving off gravitational waves. However, the, electrical, the electromagnetic force is up here in terms of strength. The gravitational force is way down below the surface of the Earth in terms of the relative strength. So while electromagnetic waves are easy to see, gravitational waves are really hard to detect. They've been predicted back you know, for 100 years now, but have not been able to be detected. And that's the problem. Because it's such a weak force, they're really hard to detect. We did have an indirect detection. Couldn't actually detect the gravitational waves themselves. But we could watch a pulsar. Remember pulsars? Right? Got a beam, got the, it's a neutron star spinning and we see the beams coming, coming towards us. Well, there's a binary pulsar which is slowly losing energy. The energy is being lost because you have two massive objects moving around very fast and they're giving off gravitational waves. It's slowly losing energy. The predictions match what general relativity would say. We couldn't detect the waves, but we're getting an indirect evidence for them. Kind of like the black holes. We can get indirect evidence that says, hey, there's 15 solar masses compressed into something really tiny. You know, we think it's a black hole, but it's not actually direct evidence for the black hole. It's not a direct measurement of the black hole itself. So the binary pulsar was one way to be able to get an idea that gravitational waves existed but not to actually be able to detect them. And that's something that um, scientists have been working on for the last, well, longer than this, but really getting into it the last 15 and 20 years is being able to detect these waves directly. Get direct detections of the gravitational waves. And finally in 2015 we were able to do that. So as I said, if I taught the, the version of this class that I taught you know, four years ago, didn't know anything about it. We knew nothing of it. We had never detected gravitational waves. We could have stopped right there at the binary pulsar and that would have been it. Still don't have a whole lot about them, but we have now been able to detect them. And we've done that through what is called LIGO. And the whole term, it's a laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory that is used, that is used to detect these. And essentially, you can see the giant arms going out here. There's the control facility. Essentially what they have is rods that are miles long and then the gravitational waves pass through them, they'll cause them to shift in size. They'll shift in size on the atomic scale. So you have to measure things that are kilometers in size and measure, no, not little shifts like this. No, I can't wiggle my fingers little enough to be able to show you. It's just atomic, Ch things changing by the size of atoms. That's how little they're changing. So you can imagine what it takes to be able to do something like this. You have one arm going out here, one arm going out here. That helps eliminate any um, accidental observations. And this would allow us to detect not gravitational waves from the sun, the moon. They're moving, but they're still too weak. This would not, this would not be able to detect them. It would be able to detect things like black holes and neutron stars that are colliding together or maybe even a massive star that is forming a black hole. Something that is really, you need something that is a very, very high amount of mass. Now there's actually not just one of these, but there's two. These things are so sensitive that you know a truck rumbling by would cause vibrations. 
Okay, well, is that a gravitational wave or is it a truck? Where did somebody slam the door in the office down the, down the road? Right? Slam the door? That might, I mean, you're talking about atomic vibration, atomic size vibrations. Anything could cause that. So there's not just one of these, there's actually two. One is down in Louisiana, the other's out in Washington State. There's actually a third one over in Italy, I believe now. That means that you know, a truck rumbling by at some exact instant isn't going to happen in two widely separated places at the same time. So if this detects something and the other one doesn't, you throw out the measurement. And that gets rid of all these local effects. And in 2015, they did detect gravitational waves for the first time from two black holes colliding together. So they actually detected this in September 14th of 2015. However, students that took it in fall of 2015 still didn't know about gravitational waves because by the time they confirmed everything and announced it, it wasn't until February of 2016. It was when they first put out the announcement that they had confirmed the existence of gravitational waves. The naming there is just gravitational wave and then the date. So 150914 is just the date. So one that was discovered later would just change the date number, it would just be the gravitational wave detections. And this is what they've detected. These are the signals from the two locations. So there's one location, there's the other. And you had essentially very little signal here. And then what you had uh, as, it, as it started to ring, essentially, and you had the same thing here, offset by a little bit. They're actually shifted by time because it takes a little bit of time. Gravitational waves travel at the speed of light. So it takes that fraction of a second for them to get from, depending on where they're coming from, to get from Louisiana to Washington State or back and forth. It takes a tiny fraction of a second. So this is what was observed. These are the theoretical observations as to what you should get if two black holes, one of 20 solar masses and one of 36 solar masses combined. So why did it take so long? Well, you found the signal. The signal looks very promising, but then you want to find out, well, what is it? So they had to do a lot of simulations to find out, you know, what were the masses of the black hole? Was it 20 and 36? Was it 25 and 18? You had to look at all those different possibilities to find the one that best matched the values that you see. And the one that they found that matched the best was two black holes, 20, 20 solar masses and 36 solar masses that merged 1.3 billion years ago. That's how far away they are. They are 1.3 billion light years away. They're not within our galaxy. They're not even within any nearby galaxy. They're way out there at the edge of space. Well, about a tenth of the way to the edge of the universe. Still pretty significant. And those were some of the first, those were, that was the first detection. There's been a couple more detections that have come on since then. So still not a lot to say about gravitational waves, except that it's now a new form of astronomy. Now we have the ability to detect gravitational waves. Right now it's got to be really massive black holes. And you can imagine, you know, what it'll be like 10 years from now. Well, maybe we can look at lower mass ones. And then 20 years from now, as everything improves and we get better and able to refine the experiments, we'll probably be able to then be able to detect lower masses. But if you think of the things of this, this occurred, this collision of these two black holes occurred 1.3 billion years ago. If it had occurred five years later, we wouldn't have detected it. Out of that 1.3, if it had been five years later, then let's see. Oh no, sorry, five years, five years earlier. Let's do it five years earlier. Then it would have passed here in Earth 
Instead of 2015, would have back in 2011, this had only come online, the new LIGO had only come online like the year before. So I mean, how many did we miss? We probably missed lots of them that occurred. It just happened to be this one was almost perfect timing for us to be able to detect. So I said, not a lot to say about gravitational waves, but more than your classmates from a couple years ago got to hear. So gravitational waves are produced by any massive object. You walk down the street, you drive down the street, you're producing gravitational waves. Very, very tiny. Black holes can produce really massive ones. And in 2015 we made that first detection. And right now we can only detect the very massive objects, things that are many times the mass of our sun colliding. But as I said, future improvements will probably allow this to work for even, uh, even more massive, even less massive objects. Alrighty. Questions? Okay. Try to keep you up to date there with what's going on. All right. So let's look at our topic for this week, which is our galaxy. And we'll start on this. Uh, it's actually a relatively short chapter, so we won't, we won't get through it all today, but we'll finish it up between here and Thursday. And that will leave us just chapters 26 and 27 to finish up between the rest of the day, Thursday, and next week for the next exam. So now we're going to move out from looking at stars. We just finished the black holes were kind of the end of our talk of stars. And now we're going to start looking at galaxies. Like we did with stars, we talked about our sun first. It's closer, we know a lot more about it. We're going to start, this chapter really goes through our galaxy and looks at what the structure of our galaxy is. So how do we determine what our galaxy is like or even what our galaxy is? It's not something that's been easy. This is one of the earliest maps of our galaxy. You know, one of the problems is we're stuck inside the galaxy. So we can't really see what things are like. And I use the example, you know, how do you want to determine the shape of a building if you're stuck inside this room. So if you're taken someplace to a blindfolded, taken to a room with no, with no, no windows in it, no close the doors, you can't see out. You know, how big is the building? How many floors go up? You know, you can't tell. How, how, does it go down? Is there a basement? Are you on the second floor? Are you on the 20th floor? You know, what can you do to be able to tell that? And you're stuck there. You can't go move around because we're stuck at one point in our galaxy and we can't move around the galaxy to explore it. We can't go travel outside the galaxy and look back and say, oh, that building is 10 stories high and you know, I was on the fifth floor. You could tell afterwards. We're stuck in the middle of the galaxy. So some of the earlier measurements were William Herschel back in the 1700s. All he did was point his telescope in different directions and count how many stars he could see in each direction. This was our first map of the galaxy. And what he came up with is shown down here. So there was our sun. If you look in this direction, you see very few stars. If you look out in this direction, you see a lot more stars. If you look in some of these directions, you see lots and lots of stars. So he estimated how far, what the extent of the galaxy by how many stars you could see in each direction. The more stars you could see in that direction, the further out, you, the, further out the galaxy must extend. The fewer stars you see in some direction, well, the galaxy must be much smaller in that area. It actually puts the sun relatively close to the center of the galaxy. 
Now, it wasn't a great measurement. It was the best we could do at the time, but we didn't understand things like dust. We've already talked about in here interstellar dust. That blocks out a lot of the light. So he didn't have that understanding yet, and what's really going on here is in this point, you're trying to look towards the center of our galaxy, and there's so much dust there that you really can't see that the galaxy doesn't end just here, but really goes way out over there much, much further. So that was the earlier measurements. The more modern measurements, you know, Herschel's were limited. He didn't know about dust, and he was only was limited by the galaxy that we could actually see. So this is the little black section there. That's what Herschel saw. Over time, we had better telescopes. We were able to see more things, and we were able to see and detect more globular clusters. And what was done was to look at these globular clusters and see how they were distributed in space. So this is what we had for our galaxy, and there's our sun at the center. If you look at the, all the dots are different globular clusters. Now the globular clusters are spread out around the galaxy. And if we use those and map their distances, map their locations, we can then get a better idea of what our galaxy is like. The advantage with the globular clusters is that this band in here is the disk of our galaxy, the flattened portion. That's where all the dust is. So when we try to look to the other side of our galaxy through here, we, can't, we can barely see anything through here. There's so much dust that most of the stars we can't see. But if we kind of rough out a very spherical area around here, we can say that maybe the center of our galaxy is off over there someplace. And we were able to get a much better measurement of what our galaxy looked like. What was the extent of our galaxy like? So um, this was uh, Shapley. I didn't give you the name here. Uh, but Harlow Shapley was the one who did some of these very early measurements to kind of pinpoint that, our, that we were not at the center of our galaxy. So the center of our galaxy would be out here someplace. The sun is now well out in the outskirts. So Herschel's observations kind of go back to the times of Aristotle in a way. You know, we're at the center of the galaxy. Look, look what his measurements showed, but Shapley's measurements of the globular clusters then kind of put us back in our place. We're not at any special location within the galaxy, and it turns out, with what we know about the center of our galaxy right now, we wouldn't want to be anywhere near it. We wouldn't, in fact, we wouldn't be here if the Earth formed very close to the center of our galaxy. In terms of the radiation and everything there, it would be too hard. I mean, life would not be able to even form. So. That gave us a better idea of our galaxy, and that gives us sort of the structure that we have of our galaxy that we know today. There are five major parts, which are the disk, which is most of the material that we see in our galaxy. So the disk would be this uh, portion here, kind of going through the middle and going out past the sun on one side and out past the sun on the other side here. It's a flattened disk, pancake, frisbee style, really flattened. Uh, really flattened galaxy. That's where most of the material that we see is. Most of the stars, the gas, the dust is all located in the disk. That's where every, most everything is. So when we talk about our galaxy and look at other galaxies that are like ours, most of what we're looking at is the disk of, disk of them. However, that's not the only portion of it as well. There's also a halo around it. That's where those globular clusters are. So there's a big halo, which would be all this whole, this whole rest of this whole image. 
would be the halo of the galaxy. There are some stars there. There's very little gas, almost no dust present. But there are some stars and there are the globular clusters that were used to determine the extent of the galaxy. So there is some material there, but most of it is actually concentrated in the disk. The other pieces are the bulge at the center. That's kind of in yellow here. That there's actually a bulge of material that's a little bit bigger than the disk. So the disk is this thin, the bulge goes up a little bit more. And there's the center, and we'll come back and look at that all by itself as a su- where the supermassive black hole is at the center. And then finally, there is an, another halo, not just the halo that we see here, but there is an unseen halo, what we call a dark matter halo. And what we found over the last couple of decades is that everything that we look at in terms of stars and dust and gas is only a tiny fraction of the matter in the universe. In order to explain how the galaxy rotates, there has to be a lot more mass than what we're seeing. That's adding in the black hole at the center, all of the stars and gas within these areas, within the disk, within the bulge, within the halo, adding all of that that we, that we know of, that we can detect through any methods, there's still got to be several times that amount of mass there, otherwise the galaxy wouldn't rotate as it does. So that's what we call the dark matter halo, and we will talk about dark matter a little bit more coming up. But it's unseen, and dark just means it's not giving off anything. It doesn't mean it's just not giving off visible light, but it can't give off radio waves, it can't give off x-rays, it can't give off any type of radiation. It's completely undetectable. But it's known to exist because of gravitational effects. Through its gravity, we can see it. So what does our galaxy look like? Well, here's an example. Here's a picture of our galaxy um, that we see. This is the Milky Way as we see it from Earth. And we have the various stars around. We've got the galaxy galaxy here, some of the various star clouds, brighter areas, uh, dust clouds that are present. And I don't think you can really see that on there. That doesn't come through very well, does it? Oh, no, that's the other one. Okay. So what you've got is this is what our galaxy looks like from inside. Again, that's one of those problems trying to do something from inside. We, don't, we can't see the full extent of it. We'd love to be able to travel tens of thousands of light years out away from the galaxy and look back down on it to see what it really looks like. But one of the things that we can do is look at other galaxies. Well, what if we look at other galaxies that have similar properties to the Milky Way? What are they like? So we can get an artist's conception of what it might look like. And this would be what our galaxy probably looks like based on all the measurements that we can make from within and looking at other galaxies. So if you could take this, travel out tens of thousands of light years and look back down on it, we would see there's the central bulge. Uh, The galactic center would be at the center. There's a disk portion here spreading out which contains spiral arms. So it does have spiral structure. We can measure that by measuring the uh, radio emissions from the various different sections and find out where the hydrogen is concentrated, that it's uh, concentrated in these bands so the spiral arms come out and twirl around. But this would be an artist's conception. We can't get a picture of our galaxy. Right? We could send a spacecraft right now, 
to head out there to take a picture of it, if it's got to travel 20,000 light years, we can't travel it near the speed of light. So we're talking, you know, a million years to get out there. And at that point, the spacecraft still isn't going to be able to communicate with us. It's going to be gone. Uh, it won't have any kind of energy source at that point. But this is an example of, you know, what our Milky Way probably looks like. It does have this bar going through the center that we'll talk about in the next chapter that is a property of a good chunk of the spiral galaxies that we look at. So when we look at these, gal these spiral galaxies, you know, we can have a pretty good idea. That's the whole idea of an artist's conception is not just, oh, let's just make things up and make it look pretty. It's based on science. So if we do an artist's conception of what some distant planet might look like, we're looking at how far away that planet is from its star. We know what the temperature is like. We might know the size of the planet. We might know its composition. Is it rocky? Is it icy? And you can use all of the information that you have to put together you know, a basic understanding. And that's what we have here with this Milky Way. Probably isn't look exactly like ours if we could get that, get that picture of it. But we do have the distinct spiral arms and we see the bar, of, the bar across the middle. So one thing that we have to question when we look at other galaxies, there are other galaxies out there that also show spiral arms. How do these come about? They're not in all galaxies. But there are a large number of them. We're not special. We're not one of the only of a handful that have spiral arms. They're common, but they're not all galaxies or not even most galaxies that have this kind of structure. So we kind of want to try to understand, look about how we could possibly form spiral structure. How can we form spiral structure within a galaxy? And some of the things that you can look at is that there is what we call differential rotation. This would form spiral arms. Differential rotation just means that things don't rotate like a solid disk. So like our planets in the solar system, nearby planets, inner planets like Mercury, zip around really fast. Outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, move really slow. So if you put them all in a straight line, that line wouldn't hold up, right? Mercury would be getting way ahead, then Venus would be here, and Neptune would be way out in the back. So you could imagine that this, would, this could twirl, that you could have parts of the galaxy, and you could stretch them out into spiral arms because the inner parts rotate faster, the outer parts are rotating more slowly, you could stretch it into spiral arms. So it's one way, but they wouldn't last. Maybe a, maybe a billion years or so, they might last a couple galactic revolutions. Our sun takes about 200 million years to orbit around the galaxy once, so after five turns, it's only a billion years. That's only a tenth of the age of the galaxy. So even after just five turns, you'd have these wrapped up so tight that you wouldn't be able to, they would no longer look like spiral arms. They'd get all twist, completely twisted up and you'd just have a smooth disk. So they had to have formed more recently. They're not something that formed early on in the galaxy and then occurred because they won't last that long. And again, while billions of years sounds like a long time to us, to a galaxy it's only a small portion of its lifetime. So we want to look for methods that will keep this spiral structure for many billions of years. And the one that astronomers use to explain this right now is a density wave. So density waves are actually kind of like a traffic jam where material gets all bunched up. 
So you get material as the as the material works out. When you get a traffic jam, the traffic jam, the cars don't stop. Now, I'm not talking about where everything stopped, but if you have things moving slowly, passing a big truck, right? Everything gets bunched up behind it. Everything's still moving forward, but just at a, but the individual cars are all bunched up in that jam. Stars are moving around the galaxy. But they're getting bunched up in these density, denser areas, which are the spiral arms. So when we still have to question why those density, why the density waves, why the density uh, enhancements form in the first place. But once they form, you would then have stars as they're coming through. They would get all bunched up in this area, and then the stars would continue to move around faster than the wave, and they'd continue through their orbit, and then they'd get bunched up again. So it's everything getting bunched up together. And again, you've got that big oversized load truck traveling down the highway, everything passing it, everything gets bunched up really behind it. That, that's what is happening with the stars and the gas in the galaxy. It's getting, getting stuck in this denser region, trouble getting through it. And then once it does, they pick up and they zoom right through the rest of it until you get to the next jam. And that would occur over and over again as we look at some of these. You might be traveling through, uh, where are we? Sun is out there someplace. So it would travel through a spiral arm, it would travel through a spiral arm. Let's go in this. And it would constantly, when it hits those, it would be in a spiral arm, other times it would not be. So it's, it's a matter that you can create it through enhancements of the density. And kind of bunch everything up, and that will maintain for a long time because the density waves are moving a lot slower. Right? That big oversized truck may be moving at 50 miles an hour down the highway. Everybody else is going 65, 70 or more. So it slows everything down in that region. It's not going near as fast. So neither are these density waves. They're still rotating around the galaxy and they'll get twisted up, but not as fast as the stars themselves would because they're not moving as fast. So this is something that can maintain. This, we use this because it can maintain these density, uh, this spiral pattern indefinitely. And also when you compress that material together, you get extra stars forming. So it highlights, the spiral arms get highlighted because as those are highlighting the density waves, that's where all the gas clouds hit together, they hit together, they start to compress and form new stars. So all stars are forming within those density waves as well, which highlights them, makes them stand out as compared to other parts of the galaxy. So that's where the density wave is right now in our galaxy, that's where the stars are actually forming. Other regions out here are not forming stars at least not to the same extent. All right, so finishing up here, again, our, our galaxy, I didn't give you the name and we'll talk about them in the next chapter, but I give it to you here, it's an example of a barred spiral. I mentioned that bar going through the center, but it's not something that we can determine easily from within the galaxy. Um, the primary parts, the disk which contains the spiral arms, the halo, central bulge, galactic center, and then the dark matter halo, which we will come back and talk about a little more later. That's actually where most of the mass of the galaxy is, is out in this dark matter halo. Even though we look at all the pretty parts in the disk and the bulge and the interesting things going on at the galactic center, really most of the material in the galaxy is out in the halo. And we believe that the spiral arms are maintained by density waves like the cars in a traffic jam. What causes those density waves in the first place could be collisions between galaxies. There are various ways to try to get, the, get them started in the first place. But once they form, 
if, we, if this is how things work, then they can explain how the spiral structure remains for periods of time. All right, well, let's get started on this, and then we will finish up the rest of the chapter on uh, Thursday. But what we want to look at here is how do we weigh a galaxy? How can we determine how much mass a galaxy has? Well, there's only one way to do this. Only way we have to weigh anything in astronomy to determine its mass is by using Kepler's third law. So from way back in one of the early chapters, chapter 2, chapter 3, we come back to it again. It's the way to determine how much mass there is within a galaxy. If we look at the orbits, if we pick a star right at the edge of the galaxy, you know, way out here, and we determine the properties of its orbit, we can figure out how far away it is from the center of the galaxy. We can figure out how fast it's orbiting, how long it takes to make one orbit around there. We figure out the semi-major axis, we figure out the period, we can then use Kepler's third law to figure out the mass. And that will tell us the mass of all the material inside that orbit. So, we figure out this, that would tell you exactly how much mass there is within, the, within that orbit. So it works really well as long as there isn't a lot of matter out here. So the first thoughts were, well, we can see where all the mass is in the galaxy. It gets less and less and less. And if we pick these stars on the outer edge, then we can determine the mass of the galaxy. <coughs> what we find when we actually make measurements is that there's a large amount of dark matter in this. Dark invisible matter that's not giving off light, radio waves, x-rays, anything else that's completely invisible. So we're finding that there's actually a lot more material there than we thought. And how we first detected this was looking at what we call the rotation curves of galaxies. Rotation curve just means we're going to take a galaxy like this and we're going to pick out stars that are in here and measure how fast they're rotating. Measure how fast they're rotating at this location and further and further and further and further out. And what we'd expect, if we looked at this for our solar system, stars that are close move really quick. Planets that are close move really fast. Planets that are far away would move further, would move much slow, would move slower. So as we got outside most of the mass, once we got to the point where most of the mass was inside the orbit of the stars, the speed should start to drop off. They should start moving slower. As we're still going through a lot of the mass, that won't happen. <coughs> so what we did was to make measurements of this, and the blue line here, this is what we observe, and the blue line is what you'd predict. That if you continue to make measurements, you're out at the edge of the galaxy. Things, you're, the only mass now is the mass of the galaxy itself. So stars should be orbiting just like planets do within the solar system and should be less and less and less and less and slower and slower as they go out. The red is what we find. Not only do they not go slower, they actually go faster. So these are the actual observations as we observe gas and stars that are further and further out past the edge of our galaxy. This would be like around the visible edge of our galaxy right here. That's about what we'd see and we'd expect, okay, it would start to drop off at that point because we're outside most of the mass. However, we find that it's actually increasing. So we looked at the velocities of all those stars at various distances. We figured out the mass and we said we expect it to do this. It does a different thing. How can we explain that? You know, how can we go about explaining that the galaxy, where, where, why is the galaxy not rotating the way that it should? And one of the ways to explain it is to say that, well, 
We're, not out, we're outside all the visible matter, but we're not outside all the mass. There's still a lot more mass out there. And in fact, when we look at the numbers, there has to be far more matter at great distances than what we can see. There's nothing visible out there. And again, that's not just visible, like that's any kind of electromagnetic radiation. The only thing we see from this material is its gravitational effects. And dark matter can represent 20 times the amount of luminous matter. For every star you see, there's 20 stars worth of material that we can't see in any form. For every gas cloud we see, there's 20 gas clouds worth of material that's out there beyond the edge of the galaxy that we cannot, that we cannot see. Now there is one other way to explain this, and I'll finish up. Uh, you know, the other option would be that you know, Einstein's wrong. Gravity doesn't behave the way we think it should at these large distances. Maybe on these scales there's another form of gravity that can be used to explain why things actually increase rather than decrease. So dark matter is our current best explanation to explain the observations that we see. There are still other things and we'll come back on Thursday and we'll talk about you know, a little bit more about the dark matter and maybe what this dark matter, what could it possibly be. So don't forget if you have article reviews make sure you get those submitted up on D2L. Uh, by 6 o'clock tomorrow so I can get them graded for you. And that's the only thing coming up until after Thanksgiving. Right. Have a good afternoon. <laughs>